welcome to the Hoop Collective podcast. We talk about the NBA, which we're recording on Thursday afternoon, and I'm at home for the first time in like six weeks. So that's good. It must mean that the offseason is settling in. Um, before This is going to be a little bit of a different podcast today because I'm going to have some, um, some authors on. Um, don't normally uh, do that during the regular season, but... Um, this is a this is an opportunity to do so, and so I want to highlight uh, Matt Sullivan and Jake Fisher's work. So we're going to talk to them in a second. Before I do, uh, we had a significant announcement at ESPN this week that uh, our colleague Jackie McMullen is going to retire, effective at the end of the month. If you are a listener of this podcast for any length of time, you knew that she was a central figure in um, in growing and developing uh, the Hoop Collective, a, a, a pillar of our Hoop Collective in so many ways, not just uh, as a as a contributor to the show, but behind the scenes as well. And so we wish Jackie the absolute best. Uh, we obviously uh, appreciate everything and I appreciate everything that she's uh, done for uh, Free SPN and also uh, the uh, the NBA and also the um, the sports writing world. So Thank you so much, Jackie. You will always be welcome here, though, um, uh, and enjoy retirement. Uh, although I feel like she's going to stay in contact. She says she's not. She says, I'm done. I'm done. I'm out of here. But I don't know about that. Um, all right. So uh, here we come with uh, Matt Sullivan. OK, so joining me, um, you know, I don't always have I let's be honest with you. I never have guests on. Uh, but when the rare events that I do, it's often to have people talk about books because I've written four books and I know that, um, you know, when you, when you are trying to let people know about a particular book, you know, the, the audience that listens to this podcast is, you know, type of audience that's interested in, in books, especially about basketball, um, Matt Sullivan is here. Matt, you know, I don't actually read books anymore. I, all of my book consumption is on audiobook. Did you do an audiobook for this book, which um, I will tell you right now is called Can't Knock the Hustle? Um, inside the season of protest, pandemic, and process with the Brooklyn Nets superstars of tomorrow. I always love the tagline. The tagline is, I'm sure, was agonized by your publisher many times. It's but. too long. I tried to change it to super team instead of superstars, and I didn't want to put nets in there because I didn't want people only in Brooklyn to read it because it's actually about folks all across the NBA. But to answer your question, I, I hate my voice and refuse to spend 12 hours reading it again when I read this thing ad nauseum. So my, my audiobook reader is great. You know, I love audiobooks too. Right before I started writing this thing or reporting it, I listened to The Breaks of the Game, David Halberstam's classic in bed with the Blazers back in the late 70s. And I think I stole a lot of the vibe from that in not just following one team, but kind of meandering through the league and the state of fame and power. And so I'm not saying this is a sequel to one of the greatest books of all time, but, <laughs> but it was definitely in me. It was in my ears. Right. Well, um, I, my first sort of big book for a major publishing house, I did read the audio book and uh, I thought I did fine. But the second time around, they were like, we're going to hire an actor. <laughs> so maybe I didn't do fine. But uh, it is very tiring, I'll tell you that. Um, so before we talk about, you know, to me, the there's something very fascinating about this book and the Nets, but which is what I really want to talk to you about. But first thing I'm going to ask you is, 
you got pretty good access for this book. At least you got interviews with the main characters, which don't always happen, especially in today's day and age when players have their own media companies. And even when they're willing to talk about a subject, they're going to control the four corners of the subject. So this is honestly a question as a reporter. I'm not even, I'm, I'm just, 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 just genuine. How did you get people like Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant to actually sit with you to do this? What I told Kevin Durant at the jump was that his whole saga in the Bay, Kyrie's soap operas in Cleveland and Boston, they've been covered ad nauseum, you know, brilliantly by you in a villainizing way on Twitter. And I told him, you know, no offense, but I don't really care about your on the court stuff. And, you know, my book does include a non-Nets flashback in each chapter dating back to the decision and covering the entire kind of player empowerment movement and its influence. Shout out to your books for the inspiration, Brian. But, you know, I told KD that I wasn't digging for dirt. And I think I was straight about that. Now, still, you, you plant the seeds with 400 plus interviews and th something's going to blossom, right? But something like Kyrie, unprovoked, sending me a 67-page Supreme Court ruling on indigenous land rights and going off on mental health <laughs> and work. But I honestly think it's just because I was asking questions as an intellectual peer and not a longtime NBA sports reporter. You know, I, I had edited the likes of Howard Beck and Jonathan Abrams and Tom Haberstroh kind of behind the scenes, but these guys didn't know me in the locker room. And so I came in with my fancy clothes and nice sneakers and asked Kyrie about Kobe. What did you wear? What were your shoe choice that you wore to these interviews? Is that, was that important? I assume, I assume that's important for these guys. That Definitely. I didn't, I didn't wear their shoes, but I wore, you know, the Jordan threes that had the special Chicago logo on the back and that impressed Wilson Chandler. And then he started going off on the NBA as a plantation. I wore my, brand new Devin Booker versions of the Air Force Ones and Kyrie was wearing them on the same day. And so mm. we kind of gave each other a nod and there was reading too. I, I would drop off, you know, when, when Kyrie was coping with Kobe, I dropped, you know, maybe I was kissing his butt a little, but dropped off a, a black elk teachings from the Sioux uh, nation, which, you know, I, I know you've, you've been deep inside the, the head of, of <laughs> Kyrie Irving yourself, including I don't even know where I've been. Honestly, I don't. He's he's one of the most. I I don't even know, but I mean, I'll just say about Kyrie before you go on. I don't want to interrupt you. Is in twenty years of covering the NBA, there's nobody like him I've ever covered, and he's a breathtaking player. And no matter what anybody says, he loves the game because nobody could ever be as could ever master the game the way that he does without loving it because mm. he has mastered it. I mean, he has mastered some technical aspects of the game in ways that I've never seen before. Um, but you know, this is so interesting. Like you're saying that you wanted to talk to Kyrie off the court to me. I'm like, when Kyrie steps off the court, he goes into mystical land and I don't know what the freak he's talking about sometimes. Well, he's hard to get to know, right? I mean, he's constantly evolving and blabbing. And I think his people around him tell him to be more concise, clear. I mean, Kyrie also hasn't agreed to a single on-the-record sit-down interview with a reporter, at least one that wasn't on his own media platform 
or on the Nets broadcast partner since he joined the Nets, really. I mean, right. I, this is why, I, this is why I'm starting off asking this. I mean, there's things I can and can't talk about with right. journalistic rules, but I mean, and apparently Kyrie has a big interview coming on this players TV startup that he put half a million dollars into and, and get this Kyrie is apparently directing a documentary about himself. And so that should be pretty postmodern or ancient, <laughs> or all of the above. I mean, Matt, I have no idea. Like, like you say that I have no idea. Like, honestly, like I, I'm, I, this is going to sound funny. Like it honestly could just be like colors and shapes. Totally. I, 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 I don't know about, I don't know what this, I don't know what makes him tick. I really don't. I think he's figuring um, it out. You know, I mean, he's at once more transparent than a lot of players and more guarded because he was so villainized as a young man and i think you know kd says oh it's just because he wanted to leave boston and he wanted to leave cleveland player empowerment yada yada but i think he's legit figuring it out as a man you know how to do fatherhood the right way now that he's kind of had a son with a partner rather than not with a partner um and how to do activism and humanitarianism how to actually show up for his teammates and not just be that guy who disappears for days at a time. I mean, I think there's a whole chapter in my book, Brian, and I won't totally spoil it here to ruin anyone's beach read. You can pick it up at your local bookseller. But, you know, I'd venture to say that it's the most fair and accurate 21 pages on this dude in his career. You know, he's at home. He's alone with his kid and his nanny. He doesn't like have people over, you know, Colin Kaepernick isn't coming over for dinner or anything. He's injured. He's depressed, which he is open about. And he asks himself, you know, when he's going to turn the corner, where he asks himself is the corner. And, and so I, I think a lot of Brooklyn's kind of title hopes for the next several years really do depend on Kyrie finding himself on, on and off the court because they're just inextricably linked. And, and as much as Kai claims to separate his day job from his, you know, real world influence, and as much as he claims to block out the haters, you know, even though that's clearly impossible for a modern superstar athlete, I think you know, Harden said it in a new interview that came out just the other hour. You know, he says, quote, as, as long as we win and as long as we handle our business on the court, our work off the court will reach the same level. And, and I hope that's true. But, you know, with this team, with these players, especially with Kyrie, the next soap opera is just around the corner, right? Right. So, I mean, like, this is the thing about this book, like the access that you get with these players particularly the stars is very unusual in today's day and age for an independent reporter. Um, you know, Durant has the boardroom. Um, you know, he just had an interview that came out with Draymond green, which was on the bleacher report, but was within Draymond's sphere. And they, in a strange way through Bob Myers and, Steve Kerr under the bus. And it was such a strange, it was such a strange conversation. I don't even want to talk about it because it was so ridiculous. Um, but um, that's, that's really one of the things I took away from this is like, man, you were able to convince these guys. And did you, did you know them? Like, did, did they know you from Adam when you approached them? No. Um, right. I mean, so I, I have a more I, remarkable. I had my spiel, you know, that I'd done this yeah. and I'd worked as a non-sports journalist and led an investigation. Yeah, I mean, you you, you worked at the that. New York Times, you worked at the Bleacher Report, you worked at the Guardian. Um, I don't know. I probably should have given your bio, but I didn't want to I didn't want to take up too much time with it. But, you know, you were not a traditional NBA reporter, I think. But, but I think that they, you know, there's a revisionist legacy polishing to things like that 
Draymond interview, which as I said, is basically a vehicle for Draymond's second career and a way to kill a half hour <laughs> when these guys are coming back from Team USA practice in Vegas. I, I think on the same day that KD was in a hotel room with Kanye listening to his new album. And, you know, I, I think that, as many things do, have the veneer of, of player propaganda on their own media outlets. Um, you know, I think they even hashed out that whole Clippers argument on KD's podcast back in April. Right. And, and I think, right. you know, and still KD, as I, as I report in my book, you know, he had told a longtime confidant that one of the reasons he ended up leaving the Warriors was because he thought Steve Kerr wasn't holding Draymond accountable for these outbursts that, you know, that and all the attention Steph got, which Katie is also denied on his like Twitter spaces, propaganda hosted by his podcast co-hosts, but it's true. He said in private that that's true. And so I would go get these sources on the record. I mean, you know that you need a ton of on background, unquoted sources to put together the detail that goes into a long book. But I got a lot of people on the record just because I went there. I went yeah. to KD's rec center and talked for like three hours with his longtime coach. And I would just be everywhere. You know, KD would turn around. I was like in his shoe closet in his apartment with his roommate because I was interested in his roommate's KD-12's special collab. And, and you know, I just noticed details there. Like, KD's Why does KD need a roommate? Split the rent? <laughs> He's got two roommates and the security guard who got in that little tussle with, with PJ in the conference yeah. finals. Yeah. Um, I, I think, I think it's, I don't want to say it's the infantilization or the, you know, simplification of Katie as a dude who smokes weed and plays video games. It's an entourage. I mean, it's a straight up entourage. The, he, he's pushed people away from his inner circle, which he said in, in the Draymond interview, pushed away his mother, you know, people taking advantage of his money and, um, he keeps his circle pretty tight, but I also think the the Kevin Durant boardroom uh, veneer, you know, nail polish, manicuring is um, is a lot of people, you know, putting his name on things. And to some extent, as as some of the startups who have taken investments from Thirty Five Ventures have said, um, you know, is just kind of a publicity stunt, and then they don't stick around for very long. And and look, Rich Kleiman and, and Kevin have done phenomenally well for themselves by using they have. The, the clout for technology and, and good on them. But, um, but it's just interesting to see what KD is passionate about and, and what he you know follows in LeBron's footsteps a lot. Right. This has happened with LeBron too. LeBron gets in on deals because they get to say LeBron is on the deal. There's a value to that. And LeBron reaps that value in, in investments. And, you know, like if LeBron's going to invest in your company, he's going to invest at a certain discount if it's even investing at all where you give him equity and if you want to be able to say that lebron invested in your company it's it's one thing to be able to say that lebron invested in your company to other investors to give money hmm. that's that's one uh, uh sort of price cost if you want to say publicly that lebron is investing in your company that's a you know that's <laughs> going to cost you even more and like you know and then and kevin especially when he was with the warriors and like there was, uh, you know, Silicon Valley IPO opportunities walking in the, the, the first five rows of the Oracle Arena every night for, for three years. Uh, you know, he took I don't know if he took full advantage, but he took advantage of it. And he is he got in on some investments. And I mean, you know, you know, you know, you hear he's an investor in these various products. You never know how much he got in for whatever. But he's. You know, I don't know if he's hit any grand slams, but he's hit some homers. He's hit some doubles. Yeah, but I, he's... I think as you document in LeBron Inc., you know, 
LeBron has set the template, but they've also made some smart moves. You know, Mav getting in early on beats, which made them a gazillion dollars. And I think in, in tracing the history of the player empowerment, you know, picking up where some of your and, and Dave's books left off, a lot of people are just trying to copy LeBron. A lot of people are trying to do the anti-LeBron, be the yeah. non-LeBron, the Spencer Dinwiddie's of the world, trying to IPO their own contracts. And then there's someone like Kyrie who is legitimately trying to, you know, also figure out how to rebuild his high school and pay tuition without taking credit for it while LeBron has like a show on Quibi about I Promise, right? And I think that's the duality that I didn't really want to psychoanalyze the difference between LeBron and Kai because it's been again, written about ad nauseum, but I do think it's interesting that Kyrie is trying to develop his own personal brand without taking credit for any of it. And that represents, I think, a departure and maybe a divide, again, without being too divisive between the mainstream, safe, A-list way of approaching things, even when it comes to activism, to the bubble, to you know, Black Lives Matter t-shirts. And then you've got the Kyrie version of the kind of rebel camp that would buy a house for the family of George Floyd and not say anything about it that would, as you know, it detailed in a part of the book that's excerpted on the undefeated, try to do this boycott of the bubble, but kind of fail because he can't unite those two wings of you know, the LeBron I, I don't know if Kyrie's a uniter of anything, but yet he does so much good. I... I He's a he's a very difficult man to understand, and and you're right. But and that's you know here here's here's honestly Matt here's what I actually wanted to talk to you about because I think this is the most in depth thing that you can see written on the Nets, who are probably going to be the team of the next three to five years. Although, who knows? <laughs> um, in my twenty years covering the NBA, I'm not sure. The, um, the a more fascinating thing that I've ever seen is Kyrie Irving getting Kevin Durant to marry him, essentially to couple with him. <laughs> Doing it in Brooklyn, you know, when you really look at it, you know, what Brooklyn had done and what it offered. Uh, Doing it in Brooklyn isn't really, I mean, I, I got that. I mean, that was, a, that was a unique road, but it, it wasn't a road that didn't make sense. I mean, you know, it was a moment where, you know, you could go into the next, the Knicks or the Nets and you took the, the Nets and it was the same, you know, sort of time where Kawhi could have had the Lakers or Clippers and picked Clippers. Same with Paul George. The Nets wanted, well, Kenny Atkinson wanted Kawhi for, for the record, but I know what you mean. It's like, there is, the easy public excuse of saying, oh, beautiful practice facility and a great GM and great pieces. And remember Kyrie got in trouble for saying they need more pieces and <laughs> the new owner and a great city. But I think really it was a franchise that they could control top to bottom. And Kyrie and KD, I, I was there, you know, the all-star game when the kind of Zapruder tape of two max slots went viral. We're all trying to read their lips, but... And, and probably a lot of people presuming that they meant the Knicks. But as I report in my book, they were at a kind of low point in their lives earlier than that. In January 2019, KD comes up to play the Celtics with the Warriors. They have dinner at, at Kai's place in the Boston suburbs. And Kyrie had been through this rough period since you visited the 
Standing Rock Reservation with him. And then his grandfather died. And as he told KD, you know, after that point, basketball just wasn't the most important thing to me, which I, I believe. Uh, KD didn't like his situation for reasons I, I mentioned. And it was just kind of like, okay, Brooklyn. And, and I don't think it was Kyrie necessarily playing recruiter so much as um, downtrodden friend. They had been through this thing that they kind of cheesily call the top of the mountain, right? They'd won already. They, they didn't need that, but they wanted that feeling. And I think they had the opposite of that feeling being, you know, second fiddle, even though they're the best like KD and, and, and Kai still feeling this desire to build something on his own terms. And that's, but see, that's, I'm going to stop right there. KD doesn't play second fiddle to anybody. This man is such an incredible talent. Anybody who doesn't think that his guys, the Warriors, they won in 2015. They were a great team, but that finals could have gone either way. Mm. Okay. They won. It, It was great. They won. Awesome. Okay. 2016, they lost. They should have won, but they lost. And I'm telling you, the 2017 Cavs were the best team LeBron maybe has ever been on. Hmm. So Kevin Durant won him that title. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, like, it just, it's crazy to me that people delegitimize. I mean, this is a soft spot for me, Matt, people who delegitimize NBA titles because they're so Hmm. damn hard to win. Okay, in 2018, the league had been sort of defeated by the Warriors at that right. point. You know, Kyrie had had broken off and the Cavs got their wheezing and coughing. They could have won that title without Durant. But the league got broken because of the 2017 Warriors with Durant. Durant doesn't owe anybody anything. He doesn't owe anybody anything. But that's exactly he, what he told... Uh, Gordon Hayward told me that that's what he said in terms of loyalty when Gordon was thinking about leaving Utah, which every player kind of wants to leave Utah. And Gordon said KD advised him, you know, you don't owe anybody anything. And Andre Iguodala told me that he told KD, you know, at this point, screw everybody, you know, management, your teammates, do what makes you happy. And I think that's what's interesting is that Kyrie could kind of lead the way, find the franchise that was going to bend to their will the coach that they thought was going to bend to their will and but he didn't need Kyrie for that no and, and that's what he says you know uh, KD's dad was texting with him when KD had already made up his mind he'd actually already made up his mind while he was playing in the finals for the Warriors in 2019 but his dad thought that he still had a chance to turn him to become a, a Nick because his dad's a Knicks fan and you know he said the Knicks is Mecca if you want to do it do it big if you want to be a New Yorker be a Nick and you know, I think KD's whole thing is like Brooklyn is chill, on the low, all black everything, play with his friends. And his dad texted him, said, are you doing this just for Kyrie because he's your buddy? And KD said, no, he's making this decision for himself. And I think it's similar to what he told Steve Nash, actually, you know, that he wanted to challenge himself with the Warriors, which I think is kind of BS. But, but this time, I think it was about doing things completely on his own terms, even if he wasn't leading the charge. He Okay, was so then why, again... All that is great stuff, which you have. Again, I go back to why this is so fascinating. Then why Kyrie? Why? Why? I mean, if you want to control the thing, why don't 
you be the leader and you go pick your, your guys as opposed, I mean, Kyrie was the guy who let, right. Kyrie was the, was the leader to Brooklyn. Like they, they, they both prefer insulation from you, me, Twitter, uh, haters. Right. And I, I think KD said but, this, but, Ky- but Kevin it. doesn't like this. No, 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 but, but, but he said, you know, even like, he doesn't like the word happiness, you know, not an efficient way for me. I don't want to chase happiness. And I think that's what Sean Marks made a deal with Kyrie that, you came here, you can talk to the media as much as you want and break the rules there. You can show up to practice as much as you want and we won't give you any gruff. And I think Kyrie has pushed those limits more recently and pissed off Joe Sy when he you know, took a two-week leave of absence in, in February, January, February. But it comes down to what Steve Nash told the team this year that Kenny Atkinson kind of couldn't figure out the year before, which is Steve's kind of secret motto, protect the group they don't have to answer to anybody but themselves on the court. And I think that's what KD said as well. You know, stick me in a gym with nine other guys in a basketball and a backpack and I'll be happy as can be. I honestly don't think Kevin Durant cares if there's fans in the stadium because of the Delta variant because he wants to hoop with his friends on his terms and just have that feeling again, which is weird because it's kind of the same feeling he expressed on the Warriors. Like, we're going to win every night. Well, look, I know like whatever tale that Draymond and KD or whoever else want to tell, KD was gone from the Warriors before that season started. And Steve Kerr even came down. I think it was like at media day. He was like, well, this is going to be our last ride. So like if you want to say that something happened in Los Angeles or something happened in in Boston or something happened in New Orleans that like, you know, it's not me. If that's the way KD feels fine. But KD was gone. He, that was it. He was gone from that season. I am, I am amazed that KD doesn't play on a team where he doesn't shoot the ball every single time. He is so freaking good, and he is so skilled, and he is so brilliant. I would just give him the ball every single time. Like, I was just in, in, in Tokyo, and Team USA, like, I know that Pop, like, applied some techniques and got them to – move the ball better and like emphasize defense. I know that drew holidays ball pressure, like unnerved some of the other teams. I know that like Jason Tatum accepting a roll off the bench was really big. Like I could go on and on about that team. That team became a great team when Kevin Durant started playing because the guy is a super Nova. He might be the most skilled player of all time. I would say he's the most skilled player of all time, but every time you say all time, it launches a thousand arguments and I'm not interested in that. I've never seen a guy who has the mastery of the game like he does. He but Kyrie treats him as a peer. And I thought that was the interesting thing in all the recreation of the building of this team, a true super team that Kyrie would say, oh yeah, Kev's coming too. Kev's coming too. And, and that, you know, know, Kyrie would go on to say we're all the coach. And I think, I mean, you followed Braun and Kyrie much longer than I have, obviously. Do you think that Kyrie was trying to play LeBron to play GM as best he could? And, and he had the Trump card to play and he played it. Do you think that this was a long con for a super team all along? I mean, I know the Harden thing was in the works for, much longer than well yeah i mean from last summer at least right um look i mean like Kyrie again when he steps off the court i really have a difficult time trying to figure out what's going on there and i don't think i'm alone okay um i i respect and uh that you were able to connect with him on that level i don't think i could and that's probably why you're sitting with him and i'm not 
uh, you know, but I will say that um, whatever Joe Sy gets frustrated about with, with Kyrie, uh, Joe Sy being the, the Nets owner, or like whatever, like if they have a bad day or a bad week or a bad month with Kyrie, if, if Sean Marks, the GM and Steve Nash, the coach have bad, like they owe Kyrie so much because Kyrie greased the skid to bring Kevin Durant there. And Kevin Durant got James Harden there. And that is so valuable <laughs> that, that you almost have to section it off and say, Kyrie, you have given Nets more than anybody ever has because you have delivered these guys because that's how valuable Durant is. Because in my view, as great as Kyrie is, he's not even on the same nowhere near the same level. And I know maybe Kevin doesn't feel that way. And Kevin would say, well, you're not a basketball player. You don't know. And maybe I don't. Well, I think that's why they bow, they bow down before him. And, you know, it's a bit of something that Kai learned from Kobe, right? Like somebody has got to be the a-hole in the room. And I think KD knows that that's what KD thinks goes into something of a quote unquote. Yeah, we all could understand Kobe. We uh, Kobe, Kobe was transparent. <laughs> Kobe was like, we're going to put more points on that scoreboard than the other team. And whatever it needs to happen for me to get to that, if I have to cut 15 of you along the way, I'm going to do it. I do think Kyrie has kind of run out of a bit of string with management, even though he doesn't think he owes them any explanation. Well, now that Durant signed, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, I'm, let me ask you this, Matt, because I, I really honestly believe you know the Nets personalities better than anybody. Um. I, I, I like I, I, you know, I, I wonder if Sean Marks had the same types of conversations that you had with these guys. So, let me ask you this: Durant has signed his extension. Kyrie is eligible for the same extension. Kyrie has openly said numerous times, "Basketball is not the most important thing to me." Like I said, Kyrie has given the Nets this gift. Can you sign a guy to a $200 million extension or whatever the number is who isn't 100% committed to his, that job? Joe Sy can certainly afford it, but I don't think... Well, that's not, that's not the question. No, of course, but I don't think the Nets owner was happy at all when Kai failed to properly communicate why he was ditching the team in late January and early February of this year. You know, that quote, pause, it was described to me by people who are still very close to him as a kind of spiritual, mental, and emotional break, which was very much precipitated by the Capitol riot and the lack of charges against the cop who shot Jacob Blake and coinciding with his partner being pregnant with his first son. And so, look, for the first time in a long time, Kyrie apologized. You know, he wanted to apologize, and he knows that he brings this stuff upon himself. He's becoming slightly more self-aware, just like he did, you know, apologize for the Boston fans distracting his team the season before. But it's a, it's a question of whether that self-awareness can be consistent and whether a humility that he occasionally expresses in what I think he would admit is a vacillation between being locked in and being somewhat depressed and inside himself. He's said, kind of jokingly, I could see myself disappearing off into the desert with a cloak and growing out my afro. I do think people very close to him have expressed that they think he could retire early that they wouldn't have been surprised if after Kobe's death, if he just never played again. But I do think he has a legitimate sense that he needs to lock in a little more, that this is an easy championship with him and James and Kev healthy. 
And so I think that question becomes harder two years from now, two titles from now. He did say he, he wanted his goal, which is again, sort of the delusions of grandeur and especially Kyrie. When he got to Nets, he said he wanted to win multiple championships with the Nets. He wanted to be considered one of the greatest point guards of all time, which his trainer then told him, well, you're not even the best point guard in the league right now, which is, you know, who knows maybe why he doesn't consider himself a point guard anymore. But that was kind of it. So if he checks those goals off his list, he, he has this big on these goals and his vision boards, beautiful mind, whiteboard, painting, whatever. I, I, I think management will let him do what he wants. Like you said, he, he, if well, he, he built it, got, they came. Yeah. So he, he's he's going to get the money. But I could see him definitely continuing to, to do his disappearing act because I haven't seen any signs that anybody's going to stop him from doing it. Well, they can't. Hmm. I mean, they owe him, they owe him a lot. And now hmm. he's pressing the bounds of it. Like, again, when you see Kyrie make this incredible, like, quadruple crossover, get into the lane, and then throw up a shot that has, like, 45-degree angle backspin that hits, like, upper left side of the backboard and goes through the net and with a foul. Mm. It's like, oh, my God this is amazing. And like, I remember asking him one day when he was in Cleveland, how do you do that? <laughs> because I um, would be at these practices at the end of these practices. And he doesn't work on that. I, I, I didn't see him do it. He obviously worked on it a lot because how do you do it? Mm. And he just said, Kyrie is probably one of the first players of the YouTube generation. When he was a kid, he would watch YouTube in his room. He would see these plays, whether they were from streetball players or they were from NBA players or they were from whoever. He would go outside immediately in his in his driveway and and try to mimic the moves. That is totally linear and makes sense of a guy who loves basketball. That is the found. It's it's actually in my view a beautiful story. Hmm. It's a beautiful story of how he developed into this. I can't find the linear with Kyrie anymore the linear is gone and that's fine but you have to make decisions as an organization based on linear stuff you know we got 82 games we got four rounds of playoffs you know we're running horns on this one we're running a one three pick and roll over here you know like I mean there are there are days Brian when he is not in that razzle dazzle mode at all there are weeks when his philosophy changes to well I'm not here to dance which I think it's a very mature approach, but you can also see it in his face. He looks like a, you know, sad puppy dog face. He looks, he looks depressed on the court. And he did when he got back from that leave of absence. And I think, look, there's a lot of rumors that fly around press boxes in general, but especially about this guy that I didn't really, I found it kind of seedy to dig into. So I'm not going to get into that, but I do yeah, think not, there, yeah. there's a psychology and a mental health aspect to this that he is very transparent about. And Jackie McMullen is incredible, but I think there was a, a, a quote in her story when I was first reporting this book that was taken way out of context about his quote-unquote mood swings. And he said, mood swings are okay. And I think he still rides or, and dies by that, but I think he, you know, in public, but I think in private, it, it, it's gnawing at him still. And, and he, he doesn't know what he wants to be. He, he, he doesn't have a linear track and he, he is unpredictable to himself. And I think that's dangerous for the Nets. They know it. I'm not saying James Harden was an insurance policy, but 
there could very well be Kyrie disappearing for games during the regular season next year. And I could see <laughs> him. You know, I, I, there, there, was, there was something I said on another podcast that got taken out of context about, you know, they might be listening to trade offers. I think it's, it's about being fed up with a player and Sean Marks listens to everybody. I don't know. You tell me, do you, do you think Kevin Durant would stab his buddy in, in the back if it came to that? Now that he's got his other buddy there, I don't know. That maybe that's speculation, but I, I think uh, Kevin could shoot the ball every single time, and it would be smart basketball. It's not the way he plays; it's not the way he wants to play, and I appreciate him for that. Um, I, I think I have I have absolutely nothing. I have I don't have one criticism for Kevin Durant's game at all. I. I think he's absolutely brilliant. And if he is happy with Kyrie there and he wants Kyrie there, then the Nets have to keep Kyrie there. Whatever Kevin wants, you got to do. Because And there's a lot riding on Steve Nash to, to babysit these guys and to level with Kai, which I think he's done really well so far. Now, look, KD also really wanted Steve there and they were – chopping it up on Manhattan beach in the middle of COVID and you know, all the other rumors about pop or whatever were just a smoke screen. And so I, Kevin runs the show. Someone just needs to tell Kyrie that it's still his team. I mean, which I think is insane. I don't think it should be his <laughs> team, but um, you know, USA basketball let Kevin run it a lot too. Mm. Um, uh, you know, he pretended like he didn't have any say, but he had a lot of say. And same with Kenny Atkinson getting fired. I mean, there's a long section in my book that I was surprised people were as open as they were about. But you know, the the sky of the Slim Reaper definitely came down. I mean, Kenny, who's now Kerr's assistant with with Golden State, you know, he didn't know that he had KD pulling as many strings as he did, and. He realized too late and, and he saw the hammer coming down. He, he slipped out the door because he knew that he was getting fired, which he would for, be the first to admit, but he maybe the second to admit, but he didn't, um, he didn't know how to be a player empowerment coach. And I think you kind of have to be these days if you're going to win it all. And so Steve Nash is, I think the perfect fit for this team and that he doesn't even really have to coach. He just needs to babysit. That um, moment in that, in that uh, Buck series where Nash is hugging Durant. This is a first ballot Hall of Famer, two-time MVP. He's no Kevin Durant. Hmm. He was no Kevin Durant as a player. That's how damn good Durant is. And, you know, um, that's the one thing about uh, people who, who have been around the NBA and really know the lay of the land. Like, they'll admit, like, if I have to go because – this guy says I have to go, then I have to go. But Kyrie's still pulling those strings. I mean, Garrett Temple, who, who's a major kind of off-the-court figure in this book, was telling me on election day when KD, Kyrie, Chris Paul, and James Harden were playing pickup together in Kobe's old gym, and Garrett had, had just gotten off the phone with KD, who said, everything's going to be okay, we're going to re-sign you, don't worry about it. Garrett's there, you know, having real talk about how he, he hadn't talked with Kyrie since they disagreed on this whole bubble boycott. And Garrett told me, you know, players have a lot of say nowadays in this league. Players in the leadership, if you go against what they want you to do, then they won't want you back. 
And if that's the case, then I don't want to be on this team. But Kyrie is the enigma of the century. So who knows? So Kyrie's well, definitely pulling a lot of strings. Garrett Temple is on the Players Association board with Kyrie Irving. Well, is Kyrie Irving really on the Players Association board? How many of those Zoom calls is he showing up to? Again, in a linear world, if you're on the Players Association board and you're in the Players Association is working 24 hours a day to put the bubble together, somebody on the board, even if they disagreed with what was going on, like they didn't have to all be in unison. That's why you have a variety of people there. But, you know, Kyrie is off trying to do his own thing because Kyrie doesn't do things linear. And maybe the beauty that he has with his game can only come from a, a mind that is not linear, but you know, teams have to make decisions linearly <laughs> you know, to a certain extent. Um, but you know, the, the, the Durant with Kyrie thing has a potential to be one of the most impactful things that happened that happens in this league in this generation, because now that they have Harden, I, I mean, Again, so many things have to happen right to win. But, I mean, they are such an incredibly talented team. Like, if they don't win a title this year or next, it's almost a travesty. And so that the creation of that, you know, it's it, it, the, 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 the beginning of the super teams, which was the Celtics and then right. really the Heat, even though that was controversial, you could look at it and understand it. You understand why LeBron Wade and Bosch would play together. You may not like it depending on who your team is and depending on what you believe is, you know, a champion should look like, but you understand it. The Kyrie Durant. And I know that like there was this, this whole thing and you, you've written about it, about how, why they appealed to each other, but it's still fascinating to me. And this, this book is potentially the source material for how this very potentially incredible marriage came together. And I think it's going to, I think it potentially could age really well. And I'm not just telling you that Matt, because I don't, I don't do that. Um, and it's can't knock the hustle by Matt Sullivan. And I mean, if you're a Nets fan, you've already read this, but I don't know how you could, you couldn't have, but if you're a, if you, are fascinated by the modern NBA. This this book only adds layers to this era that we're very much in that's developing by the by the week almost, but certainly by the by the season. Um, and uh, from a reporter standpoint, it's not like most basketball books. So um, uh, thank you, Matt, for coming on. I appreciate it. I appreciate you, um, Brian. Thanks again for um, being the inspiration for this. Your, your book. Oh, really... don't say that. That's bull. That, no, don't, no. Don't... I, I, I would say that to other people, but I, I have lots <laughs> and lots of Return of the King and LeBron Inc. underlined and, uh, and lots of credit given to you in, in, in the end of the book. And, um, and I know you'll continue to chart where this is all going because, uh, like I yeah. said, the soap opera never stops with these guys. Yeah, I just will say that I... Uh... I've been there for a lot of Kevin Durant's highest moments. I've been there when he's won, when he's grasped the finals MVPs. I've been there. I was just there in Tokyo when he got the uh, gold. One of the more fascinating guys. So thank you so much. I appreciate it. Take care. Thanks for stopping by. Appreciate you, man. Take care. Now let's talk about the play of the week. The pressure to follow up Hypnotic and Cognac weighing heavily on the team. 
Hypnotic was in the cup, blue and ready for the play. And boom, Onyeho Tequila came in with a smooth assist to Hypnotic's tropical fruit finish. Shaken, strained, poured. It was green and good. The playmaking splash shifted the tempo. Another great cocktail from the Hypnotic team. Every season is Hypnotic and Tequila season. Hypnotic Liquor, Bardstown, Kentucky, 17% alcohol by volume. Hypnotic reminds you to think wisely, drink wisely. Vivid Seats wants you to get to the games you love this spring. Experience every pitch, assist, and game-winning shot live and in person. And the best part? Each transaction is a step toward a free 11th ticket with Vivid Seat Rewards. Score unbeatable perks like free tickets, surprise seat upgrades, and annual birthday deals. As official ticketing partner of ESPN, Vivid Seats is offering you $20 off your first $200 ticket purchase with code HOOP. That's code HOOP, H-O-O-P. Visit vividseats.com or download the app today. Vivid Seats, experience it live. Now I'm joined by Jake Fisher, who is becoming a newsbreaker in the NBA. Jake, <laughs> your your very your your name is expanding, is because you're 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 all over this news. I I uh, I hate the news game. I'm glad you like it. <laughs> I didn't say I liked it. Oh, okay, good. But um, yeah, um, he's also an author, which is you know why he's here. Quite frankly, because I have respect for authors. Um, his book came out earlier this year. Um, it's called "Built to Lose: How the NBA's Tanking Era Changed the League Forever," and um, the tanking people talk about it a lot um, in during the season, especially in this last three to five years, but where tanking matters <laughs> and the reason you do it happens in the summer, because that's when you get the draft picks. And to me, the NBA draft is one of the most difficult and, in, and consequential things in all sports because one player, as we as you know, but I think can change can change everything. And a lot of times that player is the number one or two or three pick, but a lot of times he isn't. Uh, case in point, Giannis Antetokounmpo, and the desire and the need to get those top picks is everything. Is everything, and you know we just see this. Um, we just saw summer league where so many of these guys like are going to change these organizations because of the draft. And, and it's always been true, Jake, but it almost feels like um, it, it took Sam Hinkie to really crystallize just how all in teams have to be to do it. And I think honestly, it's because for so long, former players were, you, you, you tell me if you think I'm out of my mind here. This is, you know, I always thought that so for so long, former players or lifelong basketball people yes. were, 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 were league executives. And you tell a guy who his whole life has been built on competition that you're not trying to win every game. And that just doesn't fly. Um, and then owners, a lot of owners felt the same way, but we moved into a new era in the last 15 years where a lot of owners were not 
raised in that type style or became wealthy in that style. And a lot of the executives became guys who use spreadsheets and thought more analytically, not because they want people to take three pointers, but because they just looked at the lay of the land and said, you know, it's kind of important to get a number top three pick. Maybe we should do everything in our power to do a top three pick. And really maybe that should have what people should have been doing back in the eighties. And it just took until the two thousands, 2010s to, to figure it out. And you explore that in this, uh, in this book. For sure. I mean, I, it's, it's right in the introduction where I went to Orlando summer league in 2014, a year after or a year into Sam Hankey's process and Isaiah Thomas, who the older Isaiah Thomas, not the, the Celtics fame and then the Lakers and wherever he's at. The now. Isaiah Thomas. The Isaiah Thomas. He was there for broad, broadcasting for NBA TV. And he was talking about what the Sixers are doing as this affront to the game and how it was ruining professional basketball and sport as we know it. Right. So you're, I, I agree with I agree with your sentiment. And I do think that, you know, the rise of analytical minded executives coming to power on the league, you know, really helped push this strategy to the forefront too, being that it wasn't just Sam Hinkie at the time, right? It was, you know, Rob Hennigan in Orlando as well. We had um, Brian McDonough comes from Boston to take over Phoenix that, that same season. And, <clears throat> excuse me, people forget that Daryl Morey came from Boston as well when, you know, Danny Ainge at his forward-thinking front office, they traded KG and Paul Pierce to Brooklyn the same night that Drew, uh, that Sam Hinkie traded Drew Holiday to New Orleans as well. So I do agree with you that it was a widespread effort of these newer age you know, analytical minded spreadsheet thinking guys, like you said, realizing that, you know, that the top talent is clearly more available in the top five and the most direct route to getting them, especially if you're not Los Angeles or New York, where they're always going to be free agent destinations, which, you know, we've seen that more with Brooklyn, that less than the Knicks. But if you're not a glamour market, the most direct route to getting a superstar and having him under, under team control for years is through the draft. Yeah, and um, it really uh, the the tanking issue is such uh, a touchstone thing for so many people. Um, but I, I I I always have to say this. It's it's and it's common sense if you're around an NBA team, but you know tanking happens on the on the injured list. Mm-hmm. You know, tanking happens with who's inactive. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, occasionally, and, and also tanking happens with what you do with your roster. Also, I mean, you you know, you trade your star players, like um, you know, um, I'm not sure we've seen a more compelling case of tanking than we just saw this last season with um, with the Thunder. I agree, because in the case of the um, in the case of the 76ers, like they, you know, broke their roster down um, and, you know, just, just frankly had bad, bad players or really young players who had no experience that were just going to lose games because they just hadn't played together. I mean, what, what, what was their worst record, Jake? Like they, I get, you know, you know, they had the 20 game losing streak yeah, or whatever. 10 and 72, 10 and 72, right. that 15, 16 season that got the number one pick for Benson. Right. So they so they had 10 and 72 talent, quite frankly. Yeah. The Thunder have t- and by the way, like nobody calls the Thunder on this, probably because 
it's graduated to the next level, right? Because it's, it's, you know, it's, you know, normalized tanking. Um, <laughs> the Thunder like iced their two best players, iced them. You know, I know Shea Gilles Alexander, he did have um, plantar fasciitis, but like they shut him down and they sent Al Horford home. And by the way, they just announced it. Mm-hmm. Like they just, you know, Al Horford will no longer be playing for us so that he can go home. And by yeah. the way, Al Horford was like, well, I want out of here. Mm-hmm. And the last thing I want to do is go get hurt. They so, if they, <laughs> so like, it's one of the most extreme cases of tanking that I've ever seen. And I'm, I'm not saying it with venom. I'm just saying it matter of factly. It is. By the way, they, they had the worst luck on lottery night too. I know. And you know, I was just in Las Vegas for summer league. Right. And I think that's, that's a topic that came up a lot talking to executives and agents and the news breaking sources, if you will. And uh, you know what, what the thunder did this season. I mean, it wasn't just OKC too. I mean, Houston put John Wall on, the, on their bench and just handed the keys over to Kevin Porter Jr. And Orlando traded away all their guys at the deadline, and they sat Terrence Ross and Detroit just waves Blake Griffin. And what they did was far more brazen than anything Sam Hinkie ever did. And I agree. You're I agree. right, Jake. Nobody nobody calls anybody on it. Hinkie continues to take the bullets. He does. He does. And I think, you know, one big difference is – you know, I quote unquote went to Sam Presti's end of season Zoom press conference, right? Yeah. And um, you know, he starts off with this 30-minute monologue, this soliloquy about how they want to be patient and take their time and 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 build a contender and a champion that is worthy of the hardworking people of Oklahoma City. And to do so, you know, it's going to be this this plight, this path that does feature a lot of fortune and ping pong balls, but no matter what, they're going to keep their eye on the prize. And this is that that's something Sam Hinkie never did. And I think one reason why Sam Presti is considered to be one of, if not the best GMs in the game right now is that he's able to be an expert at all facets of the job, including the public relations department where, you know, I reported bleacher report before the draft that they offer Shea Gildas Alexander in a package for the Pistons number one pick Sam Presti denies it, and all of the F- Thunder fans are coming at me saying, oh, Sam Presti said this, like automatically accepting it as fact. So I think that's not to, you know, call out Sam Presti. That's to say th- that that's just how expertly he's handled the massaging of what they've well, Sam, done. Sam also has a decade plus. I don't know. He's been there a long, longer than that. He's got 15 years a lot of, time. of building championship contenders there. They, they haven't, unfortunately, haven't won it. For but sure. he has equity, whereas Hinky didn't. Uh, but you're right. Sam uh, Presti has come out and said it. Now, what Sam would tell you if he could speak, well, I mean, how do I want to say this? <laughs> Sam's, Sam's, like, there's a reason why the Thunder are going about this. And the reality is they can't, they're, they're not going to get free agents. Maybe at some point, if they build a championship level team, and there's a player who, you know, is an Andre Iguodala type player, you know, sort of not a one, you know, I'm not saying that someday they couldn't get a big free agent. You know, LaMarcus Aldridge went to San Antonio, for example, like that could happen, but today they're not a free agent destination. Um, you know, uh, uh, if Bradley Beal doesn't extend the summer becomes a free agent next year, he is probably not going to be considering Oklahoma city. So they can't build through, free agency, at least star players. And in the current NBA, 
star players for the most part control trade the trade market. Yeah. Like Chris Paul, like with Sam Presti directed himself to Phoenix, James Harden, even though it was at the tip of the spear directed himself to Brooklyn. Um, You know, Westbrook has done this several times. Like if a suit, if a megastar of, of, of a certain level is available by trade. And that's why the Damian Lillard situation, if he gets to that point, if he gets to that point, everybody hear me, mm-hmm. if they will get. be fascinating <laughs> because he's under contract for four years and would yes. have much, much less leverage. Like for example, if Bradley Beal decided he wanted to be traded, if Bradley Beal decided he wanted to be traded, he would have some control over a direction because he's got one year on his contract and he could just be like, well, I'm not going to resign. You know, Anthony Davis did this. Yep. (laughs) Boston, Boston had the assets to do it. Jalen Brown would look gorgeous in a, in a Pelicans uniform right now. (laughs) Um, Although they got Brandon Ingram, but you know, uh, but he's like, I'm not resigning there. And so he controlled where he was going. And right now I don't think Oklahoma city, even with all those first round draft picks, like if, if Damian Lillard or Bradley Beal asked for a trade today, tell me who could put together a better package than Oklahoma city. They could put together one of the greatest trade packages in the history of the game. Agreed. But, but is Bradley Beal going to commit to resigning there? So, so, so if you're the thunder, you're sitting there going, all right, well, we really can't count on signing Bradley Beal. We really are going to, it's going to be really hard for us to trade for a guy like Bradley Beal. Lillard's a different topic and maybe we'll get there down the road. We'll see. Um, so what is our way of getting back to the top? Our way of getting back to the top is drafting and developing players. So therefore, their focus as an organization is to do everything they possibly can to get and draft and, and get multiple bites at the apple because they're, they're getting a lot of draft picks because sometimes you get Giannis yeah. at the 13th pick. And sometimes you get, you know, you get, uh, you know, LeBron at the number one pick uh, or whatever. But um, uh, that's, that's why they're doing it. Um, sure. but it is, it is way more brazen than what Hinky did, but, mm-hmm. but yet, um, you know, Hinky was, the, I guess the first through the door, right? The first through the door takes the most fire, right? For sure. And, and I think you hit on a really important aspect of this, which you know, I, I kind of developed this thesis and pitched it around a lot of executives when, when reporting on the book, I think tanking played a big factor in, you know, furthering the player empowerment era where you have multiple franchises saying we're willing to lose year after year per year just for the chance, not even a guarantee, just for the chance of being able to draft you. That's how important just one of you is, let alone if we get two, let alone if we get three. And I think, you know, that's allowed players to realize, well, once I'm here, then you need to do everything I say or else I'm going to go elsewhere. And I think that has played, you know, it's, it's a Pandora's box. It's a vicious cycle, whatever expression you want to use, where the second Anthony Davis makes his trade request, like you mentioned, it opens the door now, you know, inadvertently where the Pelicans trickle down the standings in the very first year of lottery reform that got passed as a direct result of Sam Hankey's process years. The Pelicans jump up to number one. They get Zion Williamson and the clock is already ticking on the Pelicans, right? To do what they can to build a playoff. (laughs) Oh, it's ticking quite loudly, actually. Right. So (laughs) I think that, I think that, that aspect is also why the Thunder come into play here today, being that 
it seems like, again, I'm not in the building, but from conversations you have around the league, from assessing it from afar, it really seems like the, that the Thunder are trying to attack this from, you know, 75 feet before the starting line, if you will, right? Where they're trying to get these guys and build an organic winner and grow this group together with no pressure and create this culture, kind of like they did from 2007 to 2009, but recognizing the failures of that situation where, they lose James Harden to Houston. Kendrick's Perkins contract comes into play and money's up their books and KD wants to go to Golden State. Like it seems like they're already starting to try and preempt those types of situations and decisions early on here by stockpiling all these picks and having enough ammo to go and get your guy and build guys with certain characters and hire all these, you know, high school scouting evaluators from the media and from other private institutions to like really juice up their scouting department. That's, I think the other element to this where, you know, the subtitle of the book is also, you know, how the tanking era changed the league forever. Like, I don't think it's just the playing tournament and the lottery reform. I think now we've had this streamlined conversation of team building and how every single front office is, is targeting, you know, two free agencies down the line. And I mm-hmm. think that started with this whole draft, you know, projecting out and trying to build your team and seeing what type of free agent veteran talent you can add to your core two, three years in the future. And the Thunder might just be, you know, the, the amalgamation of all those ideas coming together here. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore a seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. You can now stream the most MLB games on DirecTV without a satellite dish. Yes, catch the clutch hitch, strikeouts, grand salamis, web gems with nothing on your roof. So who's ever up there, whether it's the roofers, Santa, birds, old-timey chimney sweeps, moody teenagers, thrill-seeking raccoons, you name it, they won't find a satellite dish. But you will find your MLB games on DirecTV. That means DirecTV is your home for baseball this season. Root, root, root with nothing on your roof. Yes, stream your team. Call 1-800-DIRECTV or visit directtv.com. Sign up today. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Well, the Nets are an example of this. I mean, when Sean Marks took over Brooklyn as general manager, what did he have? Nothing. He had no control over his picks, and he had very little talent on his roster. So he's like, okay, the next couple of years are not going to be so good, and we really can't tank, uh, you know, purposely. Uh, I mean, they ended up being bad because he just didn't have talent. Uh, but he built for four years down the line. And uh, it worked. And especially when you're in now, unlike Oklahoma City, Sean uh, had the ability to say, well, we may be able to get people to Brooklyn. And guess what? They They did did. (laughs) Um, uh, that, you know, but like, you know, you know, when and when Hinky looked at it, um, you know, I I don't know where he assessed Philly's chances of getting free agents, but um, he certainly wasn't banking on it. And um, and, you know. While I remain puzzled at the way Houston operated for about a 
you know, two year period. Uh, I just was so mystified by some of their decisions. Um, once from the hardened trade forward, <laughs> they have really <laughs> fall. They have got their plan and they are sticking to it and it's going well for them. And they're following the tactics that you lay out in this book. Mm-hmm. Um, they got, they were like, listen, man, we have got to get into the bottom of this dra- or the bottom record. Cause we got to get into the top of this draft. So they went, as you mentioned, they went full bore, um, to, to, uh, to get in there and they got better luck and they get the number two pick instead of number five. Um, Oklahoma city wins the last day of the season. Um, what the Clippers do on their own tank job and, yep. and, um, uh, um, and now they have a whole bunch of young guys and they, you know, they're probably going to be awful again this year, but they're going to have a bunch of young guys being awful, which is the same idea that goal that, uh, Oklahoma city has, yeah. um, like Houston, Houston basically went to the script and, you know, now if I'm a rocket fan, I'm kind of excited to watch this season, even though they're probably going to lose 60 games. Yeah. I mean, I'm from Philly originally. That's kind of how this idea to be a book started where I was coming up in my career blogging for Liberty Ballers at the same time I was in school in Boston and uh, interning at Slam and using a Slam Magazine credential to get into TD Garden. And you talk to any Sixers fan who was on board with the process. Like those years were fun. There was no expectations. Any type of victory was a blast. Well, they were fun for you. Because you look at it analytically. I'm not sure how fun they were for the average Sixers fan. Though. No, I disagree with you. I think a lot of okay. fans look back at those years fondly. They look back at Jakar Sampson and Daniel Orton and Darius Johnson Odom and the ten, their favorite pet favorite 10-day guy they had and turning Robert Covington from a D-League number one pick to a guy who's a, a, a sought-after free agent and someone that Portland's trading for to try to appease Damian Lillard. Like, I think the fans, at least the ones I talked to and the ones that were around and actually showing up to the arena at, at that time, they loved seeing, you know, Bambi's learn how to walk and run, if you will. So, but to the other effect of Houston, like, I, I don't think fans also realize how thin the line can be between contending and tanking. Like, at a certain point, you can you can turn that thing around pretty quickly. It's almost like flipping a coin where with James Harden, right, they were right there year after year, right in the, com- the conversation for a championship. He wants out. They trade him. They have the number they have the number two pick. Same thing with, yeah. brought, with Boston back in my book timeline where they were obviously perennial contenders with the big three. They lose Ray Allen to Miami. Ray John Rondo tears his ACL. They lose in the first round of the 2013 playoffs. And all of a sudden, they're, they're getting that, you know, mammoth haul from Brooklyn back that turns into Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown. And then they make a couple conference finals. Like, I think that's also part of this equation now where these front offices realize you can flip this thing around pretty quickly, push your chips on the table and look like the Atlanta Hawks or the Phoenix Suns. Like you can be out of the playoff picture and right back into the conference finals and the finals pretty soon if you get the right talent. Because in the NBA, that's why tanking, I think, is so prevalent in this league versus others, too. As much as there's the cliche that the quarterback is the most important position in all professional sports, we've seen it with, you know, LeBron 
to like Luca and Trey Young nowadays, right? Where one singular talent, let alone two, if you get a couple of them, you know, there's only five guys on the court and they play both sides of the ball. They can control that whole operation and the entire gymnasium from the refs to the fans to whatever. You see Trey taking a bow and all MSG blows up, right? So I think that aspect, the power, the, the singular agency that those guys have is why tanking is so important because even if you lose James Harden or lose KG and Paul Pierce, you can be right back in it in a few years with the guy that you drafted as a result of them leaving. Yeah. I mean, I'm not that big of a, an NFL fan, but as somebody who um, is in, you know, who whose life is the NBA when the jets won that game last year <laughs> and gifted, you know, look, and I don't know if Trevor Lawrence is going to be uh, Joe Montana. What do I know? I mean, but I know that a lot of people thought he was, he was, and um, the difference between him and the other candidates uh, was you know, it was a pretty, it was a gap. Um, like the Jets winning that game, like for, for an NBA fan, you know, to, to, to guarantee that the Jaguars were going to get the number one pick, like it's a head slapper. <laughs> it's a head slapper. Um, but it is an indication of how different the sport is. Um, because if there was an equivalent of a Trevor Lawrence in the NBA, you would see a maybe a longer than a year battle because they knew Lawrence was going to be the number one pick for two years. You know, if another LeBron James came to today, um, you know, and if there was somebody who at age 16 or 17 was, had that type of talent, who knows what we would see for the two year window before he would have been drafted. LeBron would have been the number one pick as a high school junior. Yeah. I mean, who knows what would have happened, would happen in today. Well, let me ask you about today though, yeah. in this exact moment right now, um, there aren't many teams tanking in the NBA. Uh, the, the number is, uh, is way reduced from there was like two, three years ago. Um, even though it looks like we're at a point where there is some pretty significant talent coming in to the league. And I think uh, Tim Bontemps um, on our staff, he, he put out a, he's, he does these, sto- these stories a um, uh, couple times a year where he surveys executives and um in his story that came out actually on, on Thursday, um, it, uh, you know, it talked about how, you know, the executives kind of, you know, there, there isn't as much tanking as it was before. So maybe it's cyclical. Um, but why do you think that right now, maybe there's less, by the way, that's another reason for, for Oklahoma city to do it mm-hmm. because if other people are trying to compete, um, it, it, you know, going, sorry, going against the grain makes it, more valuable but um what about in the current like this season coming up um, I, I think oklahoma city and houston are probably there but i don't know if there's anybody else yeah i i would agree with that to a certain extent i i will say you know i think the 2019 lottery reform definitely dissuaded a lot of people from from the odds and we look at what happened this year with cleveland jumping up and toronto jumping up you know the odds are definitely more volatile than before but i will say also like Oh, no, before I go there, I'll say the other thing being that with Phoenix and with uh, Drew Holiday being traded to Milwaukee, the Chris Paul, the Drew Holiday effect with LeBron and AD getting hurt. Like, I, I think across the league right now, we're seeing a lot of teams think they're just one move away from competing for the championship or competing for the playoffs. And, yeah. and I think that is the concept that, you know, after, you know, the years of, LeBron and the Heat and the Warriors and the Cavs and, you know, Spurs versus 
uh, you know, Lakers and the Celtics of, of the decade of the latter decade. Like I think right now we're in a period where we haven't been in a long time where the, the championship window is considered to be pretty open, but also I'll push back in that. We didn't think Houston was going to tank heading into last season. And we didn't That's think Atlanta was going to tank heading back into last season. And I think you know, there are tons of teams right now, like Sacramento and New Orleans and San Antonio and you know, go to the Eastern conference with, you know, Toronto and Charlotte and Indiana, like teams that think they're right there in the playing tournament conversation, right there in the playing conversation where, you know, if they get a couple injuries, like the Bucks in 2013-14 who had the number two pick when they took Jabari Parker, like when they drafted Giannis 15th the year before, they thought they were going to be a play- playoff team and Giannis was going to play all of his rookie year in the D-League. Then they had a lot of injuries, the whole Larry Sanders situation. All of a sudden Giannis mm. plays like 77 games and they're the worst team in the league. So I do want to push back that there aren't as many teams still doing it because we, we don't know who's tanking yet, right? I think that's a very fair team. point. Yeah, I think yeah. there will be some late entries like there always is, because at a certain point you realize we got to pull the plug here and get a draft pick after, you know, how how, how struggle some of the year we've had. Right. And because, I mean, again, just analytically looking at it, the team is going to teams are going to sit down in December and go, this ain't happening for us. And the move yeah. is to go this direction. And we we do see that. And, um, you know, the, the the intricacies of the draft, I mean, you know, when we when we think of the draft, we think of the moment where the guy puts on the hat, if it is indeed the correct hat, and he goes <laughs> up and he and he and he shakes. You know, uh, Silver is a hugger. Mm-hmm. You know, Stern wasn't a hugger. Stern wasn't a hugger of anybody, quite frankly. But um, <laughs> if Stern had been a hugger, it would be very hard because he was very short relative to these guys. It's a yeah. it's an easier hug for Silver, but you know, Silver is a hugger. But everything that goes into that moment obviously from the player's side who they, they pour their whole lives into this and their family and their support system. But on the team side, everything that goes into that moment, not only in the scouting, but to position themselves for that pick mm-hmm. and like, um, you know, really it, it you know, it's be, because it comes so rapid fire and because the nature of the league is okay. Well, summer league is coming up immediately. And this year it was like, you know, uh, free agency is in 15 minutes. Yeah, it was Disney. Um, um, it's hard to focus on that moment, but it is like everything. It's like the most sacred thing is that moment. And that, you know, I guess superstar, uh, you know, what decides, you know, championships these days is how superstars try to force their way through free agency or trades to teams. But when it comes to, you know, franchises and the future of the league, it's, it's in that moment. And like, there's such machinations to get to that moment. And um, that's, you know, that's really what this, this, this book is about. And, um, um, and it, and, and it, and the book sort of, it makes you a smarter NBA fan. Thank you, man. I appreciate that. Um, so um, it's called built to lose how the NBA is tanking your change the league forever. Jake Fisher. Um, you're going to hear more from Jake Fisher in the coming years is my prediction. Um, if this is the first time it shouldn't be, cause all of my listeners are very educated, Jake, they all know who you are, <laughs> but if it is the first time you've heard from Jake, I promise you it will probably not be the last. So thanks for uh, doing this. I hope you are enjoying your summer. I won't say where you are right now. <laughs> this is part of, I'm sure a very big project, but, um, let's just say you're, you're not sitting at home. 
this summer. For sure. I uh, thank you again for having me. And uh, I hope to be able to share more about the big project by sometime in October. And okay. uh, yeah, we got we got more stuff coming along at Bleacher Report. So thanks again, man. I appreciate it. All right. Thank you, Jake. Thank you uh, earlier to Matt. Thank you for listening to the Hoop Collective podcast. I uh, hope you're enjoying your summer. We will talk to you next week.